Welcome. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, clinical psychologist and clinical director of psychotherapy, education, and training at Novamind. Thank you for joining us on Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, a podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and mental health. If you're a therapist, clinician, guide, healer, passionate enthusiast, or simply curious about psychedelics and mental health, then you are in the right place. In this episode, I'm joined by Cedar Psychiatry Clinicians Derek Moody and Mari Macbeth. Derek is a physician assistant and Bari is a clinical social worker. They both have extensive experience in the use of ketamine to treat a variety of mental health conditions. Today, we discuss the topic of self-sabotage. If you're a human, then you are likely painfully familiar with this phenomenon. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, get a little vulnerable, and spout a ton of wisdom. I hope you enjoy All right, welcome back, folks. Today we are with Derek and Vari, and we're going to talk about ways in which we are self-defeating. What is, what's wrong with us? Right? <laughs> human, human beings, we uh, are our own worst enemies in so many ways. And uh, it, thinking just rationally, we're not rational robots, of course. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would we self-sabotage in ways that we do? So I wanted to talk today about the ways in which we're self-sabotaging and maybe because we three are mental health clinicians, we can offer the listeners some insights on uh, how to be less self-defeating, hmm. how to get out of our own way. So I was thinking about ways in which I'm self-defeating, and they are myriad. They are legion. <laughs> there are many. They are legion. I, uh, I get You're my perfect. own. I'm not perfect, believe it or not. Oh. You know, in spite of what the the flannel shirt, the beard, and the bald head would suggest. Yeah, I'm a PhD. I'm not true. Yeah. I'm also a doctor. Yeah. Not a real doctor. I'm a doctor of the mind. <laughs> we got no real doctors here, then. That's true. We're doctorless. Yeah, I say I, I'm not the. Oh shoot! I had a funny phrase about not being a real doctor, and I don't remember it. See, I'm getting in my own way because I'm having brain fog about something that would otherwise be so hilarious. Yeah, because if you actually said it and no one laughed, that would probably be worse I know. than just forgetting. Right? Thanks for revealing my greatest fear. Yeah. I'm just saying things. Oh, hey, you're welcome. That's what laughing. therapists do. That's right. <laughs> Um, yeah, so ways in which I'm self-defeating, they, a lot of them have to do with, with food. Like, I want to eat a healthy diet. I want to eat real food. I don't want to eat a lot of processed, sugary garbage. Um, I also happen to love processed, sugary garbage. It tastes so good. So, like, early morning, Steve, is gung-ho to eat healthy. And, you know, I'll, I'll pack a lunch for work, and I might even eat that lunch at work. But heaven forbid if somebody brings donuts for lunch to work. And then I'm sitting there like Recent eating example. eating my can of tuna like with a fork with some salt. Just like so sad but healthy. And I'm staring at this donut. I can't wait to bring a box of donuts. <laughs> I know you're going to. I should not have revealed my weaknesses. Um, but so morning Steve isn't there. Like there's like a different version of me that's like, oh, dude, just eat that donut. You know, it's it's not a big deal. You know, you, you know you might get a little tired afterward. You're going to have that, that blood sugar spike and crash, but you've done that before. It's not a big deal. It's going to taste super good. And then I do it, and then I regret it, and then the cycle starts all over again. So why do you do it? Why do you eat the donut? You're a therapist. You tell me. Barry is just going to be like thing. reading our minds this like, whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't have invited me. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, I feel like as a therapist, like, that's the thing is that maybe I have some ideas of why it happens for me or what mm -hmm. other people have told me, but I feel like 
I'm not an expert on you. You're an expert on you. Right. And so I feel like you're going to have the best insight to that. Kind of like with psychedelics and this inner healer. I think outside of psychedelics, we have an inner healer and we know how to fix ourselves. But what's the general? Do you have a general? I've seen so many people. What are some of the general trends? Why people get in their own ways? Yeah, because it's super confusing, right? Mm -hmm. Like I beat myself up about it. I'm like, why am I doing this? I know this is stupid. I think of myself as someone who like can think long term and think of the consequences and be smart about my decisions. But then I do things like that. And so I was trying to figure it out. And I saw something really cool that someone was saying that our minds aren't programmed. We haven't evolutionarily evolved to be programmed for success, that we've actually been programmed to be safe. Mm. And so we, by default, operate in this place of safety. We do what's safest for us. And so in in our world, in our culture, we're like, oh, it's logical. Everyone wants to be successful. Everyone wants to have a good life. Everyone wants to be liked by everyone and look really good if it's a food example. But we're really coming, making those decisions from a place of safety. I totally agree with that. The notion that, so where is this all this coming from? Self-defeating ideology is safety for the Mm -hmm. most part. I mean, if if you take this in the most dramatic opposite end, let's just remove that. Let's kill and crucify the self-defeating personality. And I think you're not going to make it very long in this life. You'll be you'll be gone. You'll make it a lot longer today than you would have a thousand years ago. Because a thousand years ago, you're just like, you know what? I got that bear. Boom. Ten-year-old faces a totally full-grown grizzly bear and gets eaten to death, right? So... I mean, aside from Donald Trump, I can't think of many other people who have completely conquered that self-defeating <laughs> ideology. Because, yeah, and I don't agree with that because, like, you'd be like totally narcissistic if you didn't have that voice there. But so, I'm, I'm, it's not fair to bring up the, the total extreme there. The yeah. idea that, uh, the idea that if you didn't have that, you're just going to be narcissistic. Mm-hmm. But to go back to this idea of, well, what's the right balance then? If it's not a matter of, okay, I can't just get rid of this thing. It has its utility for sure. So what's the proper amount of a self-defeating behavior? Is that, is that even a fair way to approach the issue? I think so. I'm, I'm going to take a tangent before I respond directly to what you said. Because something that Vari said made me think of, um, you know, there might have been some some mechanisms, some neurological and evolutionary mechanisms to keep us safe that were really, really useful when we were hunter-gatherers that have evolved over the course of hundreds of thousands of years in the human nervous system that are less, they're mismatched for modern life. So, you know, safety maybe is a short-term perspective thing. I need to make sure, do whatever I can to not be out in the elements tonight. I need to do whatever I can to not be rejected by my tribe. So I need them to like me so that I don't die or starve. I need to do whatever I can to get away from this predator. So it's, it's, it's triggered by you know our perception of danger. The fight or flight system turns on. We're in sympathetic nervous system tone. Uh, our priorities shift. And then to, to take care of a threat that's right in front of us, right? But in, in modern life, especially for those of us that are privileged enough, um, we don't have a lot of imminent threats to our survival, but we still have the same software running that's a little short-term focused. So uh, I might perceive, uh, like if I'm trying to, to, 
let's say let's say I'm I'm at an unhealthy weight and I'm trying to lose weight. Back to the food example, I need to eat in a caloric deficit. That means I'm going to be hungry, and being hungry was dangerous back in our hunter gatherer days. We didn't want to starve, and so it triggers this sort of oh no feeling. And uh, in order to to like meet the goal of getting back to a healthy weight, I have to fight my nature. So I think in some ways we're self-defeating because we have a mismatch between what kept us alive, evolutionary speaking, back in the day, uh, and what we need to keep us alive now. Hmm. Yeah, and I would also argue that it's still today culturally driven, that we make more money, we do a lot of things to keep ourselves pampered, not having to deal with distress. Like I have a really nice mattress that I sleep on and I paid a, you know, a lot of money for that and that's to keep me comfortable. Like I do in my day-to-day life, I do tons of things to keep me from being uncomfortable, from feeling pain and do more things to increase either current joy or future joy. And I think that our culture says like feeling bad feelings or sometimes even feeling good feelings is not is not okay. We do everything we can to avoid that because that's that's not that's not what we want. That's not that's not success. That's not happiness. That's not what you want your life to be. And I think we've gotten even more that way with parenting, where we love our kids so much and we try to do everything we can so they have a good life and so that they don't feel pain and don't have uncomfortable things happen to them. And that comes from a really great place, but it also creates a problem that. We think that being sad or being angry or not being comfortable is bad right. and to be avoided. Yeah, that desire to seek pleasure, avoid pain, which maybe we, you could make the argument is evolutionarily selected for, um, makes us like less resilient now is what I hear you saying. Like, if you remove all the obstacles for a kid, if you become that snowplow parent who just removes all the obstacles – then your kid doesn't have the stimulus that pain or difficulty would provide to help them develop resiliency or to help them develop skill. So if we, if we give in, this is a good example Barry, of, of how we are self-defeating. It's if we give in to our desire to just be comfortable all the time, we actually become less capable. I know, I know I have some clients that'll ask, you know, um, I just don't have much drive. I feel like I can't, I have no self-discipline. Mm-hmm. I can't achieve any of my goals. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways I like to approach that with them is to practice being uncomfortable. Like deliberately make yourself uncomfortable, not in a harmful way, not in a permanently damaging way. A simple example might be at the end of your shower, turn the water cold for five seconds mm-hmm. because you don't want to. I'm going to buy my hair shirt tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I used to do that all the time for like just cross country. Yeah, we would yeah. do a cold, cold shower, cold bath, and and it really was a hundred percent that mindset of I'm doing this just to teach myself to be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. to show, mm-hmm. to put myself in that position. Uh, you know, there's a, a few different ways to. I was going to comment on these, but I think one was trying to understand why, because that was one of the original questions. Why do we do this? And when you bring up this idea of if I, if I, if I am defeated, then that makes me a weaker person, and maybe you actually want to be that weak person. That's probably like the the most dark narrative that you could surface. But I know I do that all the time. 
probably way more than I like to confess, but I mean, I think everybody does that. And it's, and it's really important to start to be able to catch yourself in those ways. Like I am defeating myself because I actually want to be weaker. I want the coziness of less responsibility. I want to stay in my safe little spot and not go venture out into being and doing something new. Yeah, I think that brings yeah. up another good point is that sometimes it's not even like that we want the comfortableness, but that we also have this weird thing at being human where we have to have our behavior match our beliefs. And so when there's that disconnect, it's like we can't handle that. So we either have to change the story hmm. or the narrative or we have to change our behavior to match our beliefs or we have to change our beliefs to match our behavior. Well, you could look at it in the context of identity as well. Like, yeah. I'm someone who eats donuts. Right. I always have eaten donuts. Yeah. And even if I tell myself I'm never going to eat donuts anymore, sorry to keep picking on you, Steve. But I, I, like, I did it to myself. <laughs> I like I, I eat donuts donut too. Metaphor, but yeah. like, <laughs> but if, it's like that's part of my identity. And for me to now jump out of there and say, you know what, I don't eat donuts anymore, it's kind of a shock to your system. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be part of you that's definitely going to resist that. And to take on a new identity that's going to say, okay, I'm going to be someone that never eats I donuts anymore that's in and of itself going into new territory yeah there's always going to be some hesitancy and then you're probably going to activate that ancient age-old biological response that says hey you're doing something new you're going somewhere new you better retreat a little bit protect yourself and be safe like Vari mentioned yeah yeah and it can come from your conditioning like maybe your parents were always like you're the fat one and your your brother was the skinny one or whatever and so you're like i'm the fat one must keep up image because when I was that, that's who I am in my family. That's how I belong in my family. And I want that connection with other people. And I have this patterned long-term belief about myself that I'm not ready to give up because mm-hmm. it could mean disconnection. Well, it and could mean pain. And, and if you just take the term defeat there, there, there's a whole story that you could just draw from that. You've been defeated. Mm-hmm. Someone has taken you put you to the ground put their foot on your throat and you're just down there helpless and it's kind of like the the traditional bully story so when you're trying to identify where this comes from i don't know maybe there is this deep abiding genetic biological bully that's trained to keep us down for safety reasons but you know Mm -hmm. when you bring that up there is some conditioning whether it's a parent that's put you down there or if you've experienced a real-life bully, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming if you've made it through middle school, at least somebody has questioned your validity as a human being by the time you get to middle school, that that voice gets in there. Yeah. Well, and, and I'd like to point out that, like, maybe there it's fine to have a donut. Maybe that the pros for you way out, like, outweigh the cons. And so maybe everyone else is telling you you need to eat well and you need to look good. And deep down you're like, no, I don't. I'd rather have a donut for the rest yeah. of my life. So we've identified another reason why people d- defeat themselves. And in, yeah. in psychology, especially in the in therapeutic circles, we call them core unconscious beliefs or narratives, right? Self-defeating narratives that happen because, like Mari said, conditioning, the way we were treated when we were young. Um, it's passed down through uh, the sort of collective agreements of our society on a micro level of like the family and then a more macro level of the state that we're in or the other community that we're in. And then you just keep going outside of, you know, the concentric circles of community and the expectations are of your country. And then uh, the era that you're born in, all these things can affect our identity development when we're young. And like you said, we are driven to preserve that identity, even if it's a self-defeating identity, like, Oh, I'm supposed to be the quiet one or whatever, like Mm -hmm. you were saying. 
So why do we defeat ourselves? In part, it's because we're trying to stay consistent with who we think we are, even if who we think we are is really unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And um, we might also be socially reinforced for continuing to be that person. Like I've had the experience with some of my clients where they'll say, you know, I've worked so hard in therapy to change. I feel like I've made great progress. And then I go back to a family reunion and all of a sudden I'm 13 again. Like my family has put me back into the role that I was in. I feel compelled to uh, function in that role. It's really hard to break out of. And most of the formative years, you're playing a subsidiary role. You're a kid. You're a student. You're always lower. And so society, for probably known and probably good reasons to some degree, I mean, obviously you're a little kid and not making the wisest decisions, has put you down and has defeated you. And that's that's really just the context of maturing through birth to adolescence to adulthood is you you're always in that oppressed um in a in a in a, in a narrative of oppression to some degree and i think that's inescapable i would agree with that with i'm agreeing with myself <laughs> but um yay me see i've conquered myself you're, you're not self-defeated i'm not self-defeated right now you're self-aggrandizing that's great but you know it's not like i pre pre-chew my thoughts so as i'm thinking of that out yeah, loud i do right. agree with that like Every kid, which is your formative years, the formative of your psyche, it's always you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, don't do this, don't do this. All these no's that come from culture. I'm very grateful for most of them because they kept me alive. Right. But you have to realize that that is the climate. It's part. Of, it's a significant part of the, the psychological climate of your development. And so you're raised in a defeated state. And, and I think that's why this is such a big topic because as you mature into adulthood, though you become the adult you become the one that has to make those decisions and that transition is a difficult transition Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and like as a kid you just simply rely on adults to keep you alive to keep you safe and to make sure that either nothing happens bad to you mentally or physically (laughs) yeah because what are you going to do pack up and go live in a tent by yourself like that's not happening you have to make things work in the environment that you're at and you don't some people, the conditioning is is enough that it's hard to break that even when you become an adult and realize I'm an adult, I'm not a child anymore. And it's also like you, we maybe just have so much going on in our lives. We don't even have a chance to, to really say like, what are my core beliefs? What are these old patterns that I have? Because life is really hard. Life's really stressful. And a lot of times you're just making it to that next day even as an adult. And so we don't have time to look at those old patterns or to question, do they, are they still serving me? Do I still need them? We might not even think to look at them either, right? No. I mean, in some, in a lot of, a lot of times they are unconscious. One of the things, one of the things that makes therapy so beneficial is a, a good therapist can help you look at those things, help you develop awareness around the patterns that run your life. You know, Carl Jung said, if we don't make the, the unconscious conscious, it will dictate our lives and we'll call it fate. Right. Um, well, and it's terrifying to think of how much of our lives and that unconscious momentum was originating when you were in eighth grade or going through puberty right. and a teenager. That's terrifying, right? It should be terrifying. And that's probably why we're all totally messed up eighth in grade, some way. Speak for yourself. I hit puberty in like fifth grade. Like, <laughs> that's why I have this thick beard and this eighth bald grade. head. So you're really proud of that? Oh, or? yeah. <laughs> 
was good. That was, was way good. cooler. Yeah, I peaked early. Yeah. Unfortunately. You know, the, the studies say that it, it is great for guys to go through puberty early, but it's yeah. the opposite for girls. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times because they'll get attention that they don't really know how to metabolize or understand, and they'll right. get teased and right. But there's yeah. Anyway, again, just That's going back to the topic. Yeah, but, but no, I mean to bring it back into the topic, it's just another example of how unprepared you are for life as a little kid, and you're yeah. you're you're brought up in this nested shell of protection from your parents, from society and culture. So it does serve a function of protection and. You know, from a, a truly biological landscape, not many of us are out there, you know, dying to get more food or shelter. Like we've we've covered a lot of the biological necessities, but the social climate is still just as I would I I mean I'm careful with my words, but I think it's accurate. It's just as dangerous as it was a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. It's the social dangers of making a fool of yourself, mm-hmm. putting yourself down lower in the social hierarchy. Those things still exist, and to to tell someone otherwise, it's not an easy thing. I don't, I've it's never a, been able to convince a, lie, a teenager, right? Yeah, I mean, we desperately need connection. We just think about COVID and how hard this has been on all of us, and how we don't even recognize how hard it's been on all of us. We need other people, whether we're introverts or extroverts. We are pack animals. We we desperately need to be liked, and it's both a physiological thing and a mental thing. Yeah, which I think, so if I'm a person listening to this and, and I hear that and I say, yeah, I need people, why do I keep pushing people away? Mm. Why do I keep having these weird relationships where it gets really intense and intimate, but then we fight and we argue and then there's broken hearts? Mm-hmm. A lot of people have these repeated patterns in their lives socially where, yes, they need people and they know they need people and their relationships follow these sort of destructive patterns and there's probably yeah. a million answers to that question but yeah have you guys ever pushed people away that and been like why did i do that because the exact opposite of what i wanted yeah, yeah. The dis- i mean dissonance and dissonance in your own behaviors uh i was I, again going i have to fulfill my role bring in a movie <laughs> so this there's is Chris Farley man. in oh, which one is it? It's Tommy Boy, I think. Tommy Boy, where he's got he's doing some sort of interview and he's like, "Why do I keep failing these things? I just have this perfect situation, and then no, I he, come he, in after it. He and gets I start, he gets like the, the, something the dinner fire. roll, no, the dinner roll or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like this croissant, and he's like, and he has this perfect little croissant, and he just ruins it, and he's like <laughs> crushing <laughs> it. His head. It's like a little puppy, and yeah, just yeah. tears its head off. So yeah, I mean, again, this is such a good topic because you know the why and. And then Bari, you say it's an individual thing. You really, it's hard to make these generalizations because you have mm-hmm. to look into the individual's lives for the reasons. But I think more often than not, you start to find and discover those reasons. Like there's something, yeah. something behind it. Um, like something I've seen for some people is it's a way they test it. Do you really love me or not? Mm-hmm. Like, can I treat you like this? And you'll still come back. Right. And so it's like a test. And we want to know, how much do you really like me? How much are you really here for me? If I treat you like crap, will you still come back? Yep. And I mean, another possibility is I don't believe I'm worthy of love. Mm-hmm. And so I am going to, I'm going to beat you to the punch. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to push you away so that the rejection happens on my terms. Yeah. It's back to that of, like cognitive dissonance thing where right. I have this internal belief I'm crap and I've got to make the behavior of myself and other people reflect that. Mm-hmm. It, it's bracing yourself for a fall. Yeah. And and so I guess you could say based off of your lived experience you failed a hundred times over and so you're like, Oh well that sucked. 
Mm-hmm. But I find that if I kind of preempt this, it doesn't hurt as bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day with cross country, it was really funny. Not cross country. This is more track. I have this vivid track memory of being at the line with 10 other people. And you're just kind of loosening up, waiting for things to get settled and the, the race to start. And guess what everyone's talking about right before this race? Like it happens every time. Hey, guess what I did two days ago? Oh, it was so hard. We did such a hard workout. I'm probably not going to do great today. You're mm-hmm, like, everyone's mm-hmm, sitting there making mm-hmm. excuses about how hard their week has been or, you know, oh, my, my, my leg's been bugging me this next week. So hopefully, hopefully it loosens up in this race. But you just see everyone highlighting this, probably except for like the, the champ of them all. He's just like secretariat, just like focus, like don't mess with me. I'm going to win this thing. <laughs> but everyone else like me, this, the, yeah. the weaker runners were like, oh, yeah, already making excuses. Yeah, yeah. Which reminds me of this thing that like completely blew my mind when I first heard it. And it's, it's the term for it is secondary gains. And it makes hmm. it like is so feels so counterintuitive and can sometimes feel mean, I guess, when you say to someone, well, what, what are you getting from doing this to yourself? And you're like, I hate like the person's like, I hate this. I'm not doing this to myself. I don't want this. And so it almost feels like you're accusing them of being like doing this on purpose, right? Which mm-hmm. isn't isn't true. It's not a conscious thing that someone's doing, like being like, well, I get all this stuff out of out of it, so that's why I continue to do it. But there is something. There's always something functional about why you do something. Mm-hmm. And I think that instead of that creating more blame or shame for you, it can say like, there's some really, really good functional reason for why this is showing up. And, and maybe that's yeah. okay. Maybe right now you need this really stupid thing that to everyone else looks so dumb but it's it's keeping you sane it's letting you go to work every day or get out of your bed Mm. and maybe that's where you're at and that's that's okay for right now too and when you look at that situation you can see again the performance of conscious versus unconscious because to the conscious mind and the conscious identity that is totally offensive why would you be pushing everybody away? Mm-hmm. Well, I would never do that within mm-hmm. my within the site that I have. Right. But what what you're citing there, Vari, is unconsciously you're being drawn to something, mm-hmm. and and I there's a there is a strong logic to that. There has to be something of value there, or you wouldn't be pursuing that behavior. Mm-hmm. And and maybe and, and I would agree. I wouldn't go right into their face and punch them, saying yeah. yes, you know exactly what you're doing. But it, it lightens it when you say well perhaps unconsciously there's something you're not totally aware of that you are attracted to and that's where we go to the young we got to make the conscious unconscious let's let's at least explore for the sake of for the sake of exploration to just see is there maybe some payoff you're getting from defeating yourself yeah and instead of hating that part of you or hating that reaction you can really embrace that and say thank you like thanks for taking care of me thanks for letting me get up every day and so because if i didn't have this i might not i might i might uh not have a job or Mm -hmm. i might do something even more harmful and so it's it's good to acknowledge that there that it's something to be appreciated yeah, the gratitude and not something to for, be ashamed for. Of. It's necessary for integration, right? Because if you just take that part of you and say, well, screw you, I hate you, you're just nothing but a pain in my life, shove it out there back into the unconscious, it's going to probably pr- proliferate it and mm-hmm. magnify the problem. So being grateful and understanding why it's there and why you're doing that can then help it better fit into a bit different position. Yeah, and honestly, it. maybe you're not ready. Maybe Maybe it is better where you're at 
doing something that to everyone else looks silly and stupid. But when you really look at it and think about it and analyze where you're at and where your mental capacity is and what kind of resources you have, maybe for right now, that is functional. That is the best you can do. And so I think that's when change happens is when what you're dealing with now is more painful than challenging the norm. It reminds me of what uh, Gabor Mate says about addiction. Um, He says, when we're addressing an addiction, which is a form of a self-defeating behavior, Mm -hmm. don't ask why the addiction, ask Mm -hmm. why the pain. Yeah. The addiction is serving a function. Mm -hmm. And typically that function is to address some kind of pain. Mm -hmm. So I I like the way you two were talking about this because it, you address that pain first by generating awareness around that pain. Let's learn about why it's there. And then you learn about the function that this self-defeating behavior serves um, in a way to ameliorate, to, to address that pain. Even though it's self-defeating, it does serve a function. And I think if there is a pathway to healing that, it's through this expression of gratitude, like thank you alcoholism for you know helping me avoid the suffering that I've been trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. And from gratitude, you go to compassion. I can only imagine how hard it's been for this part of me to have to have turned to this thing. You know, it's, and maybe it's my inner child. Maybe it's a wounded part of me that, that doesn't deserve my hate, that doesn't deserve my judgment. It just deserves my compassion. I think from that place, it's probably a lot easier, not easy, but easier to make changes. And then maybe you can uh, once that part of you has been thanked and uh, you know has had compassion expressed to it, it's willing to let go of the self-defeating behavior in favor of something that also addresses the pain, but maybe is not so self-destructive. Well, behind compassion is understanding, and I don't know if it's just because of the amount of exposure that I get and maybe we get in the mental health. But I understand, I personally, I feel like I understand the self-defeating mentality a lot better than its opposite. Because when you first pose the question, like, why do we defeat ourselves? So like, well, do you want the list? I got a list. I'm not tall enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not fast enough. I got to be in this class. I felt here. This girl rejected me. This girl rejected me. We can probably go on for 10 minutes. Cut scene. You're triggering This girl me. rejected me, right? <laughs> like, here, here's everything that I've done in my life that I've completely botched, screwed up, and failed at. So why do I defeat myself? Well... Because I'm pathetic, I'm miserable, and I have all these limitations, and I failed in, in a countless number of ways. So to me, it's like I can understand that, and then hopefully it's not just I fester in that pool, but you know I can learn that gratitude, compassion, understanding. But to me, the more bewildering is question. The more bewildering question is this: with all my limitations, with all of my failures, why in the world would I trust myself? Why in the world would I? actually have faith that I could succeed in life and move forward and venture forward into the unknown and actually believe that I would succeed and not fail, yeah. right? To me, that I mean, and when I say that, I do say that honestly. It's like, man, what have I done to, to even acquire what limited amount of success I've had in life? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't start with trust, I don't think. Hmm. I don't think it starts with self-trust. I think it starts more with the things you were talking about before, and that's compassion and understanding. Hmm. I can have compassion for somebody who um, broke into my house, but I might not trust them. I might not want to have a relationship with them, but I might have compassion for the pain or the mental illness or whatever it was, the anger that uh, prompted them to do that kind of harm. So when we're talking about ourselves, I think you don't start with trust because you're right. 
if you've betrayed yourself, quote unquote, many mm -hmm. times over, you're not going to trust yourself. And to try to trust yourself would be foolish because if you then break that trust again, it's more evidence that you should not be trusting yourself. Mm -hmm. So I think you instead start with just compassion. Like, okay, there's a part of me that keeps screwing this up and I want to understand why. And once I understand why, okay, I see why it's happening. Um, maybe I can start building trust if I can calm this part of me down enough that I get some wins. Hmm. You know, I, I like to say that, that confidence is built on competence. You got to actually improve skills around a thing before you can decide to trust yourself around that thing. Um, but that takes some courage. And that courage, I think, comes along after you have loved that part of yourself into a willingness to change. Interesting. So as you say that, this is probably a totally misfitting analogy, but like breathing, you don't have to teach yourself how to breathe. You just do. It happens. So maybe there is a part of us that's kind of aimed a little bit downward, down at that self-defeating and failure. And, and for some of the reasons that we mentioned, that secondary gain. But if that component exists within you, then there probably is this counter component in there as well, a part of you that actually wants to succeed and thrive. And so when you kind of said that, what it made me think of is if you just show compassion towards that part, it'll just allow things to be in their proper balance. And that part of you that's already there, it's not like you have to reinvent the wheel, mm -hmm. rediscover it. It's there. It'll actually start to just carry you forward. Right. So this is making me think of, I've already mentioned the inner healing intelligence. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of, you know, Carl Rogers' idea of how a person would progress in life. They would self-actualize naturally if they were given the right environment. And mm -hmm. the right environment is mm -hmm. one of unconditional positive regard. It's one of acceptance. It's one of, um, you know, uh, love. And that, that just like we might have what Freud called thanatos or death drive, this sort of self natural self-destructive tendency, like you're saying, Derek, we, we probably have, even if that's true, I'm not sure it is, but we have um, a part to us that also wants to thrive, that wants to heal, that wants to um, be happy. And if we give ourselves and surround ourselves with other people that give this to us, but give ourselves um, the right environment that will progress naturally. Yeah. And I'd say the right environment to take risks and to be on, to be able to experience pain and failure is one where you have a soft place to land, where you can find those people out there that even if you mess up, you can go back to them. Kind of like this parent that it's really scary to first start walking, but if you can see your mom or dad out the corner of your eye and you know they're going to come get you if you fall down on the ground, you're going to be more likely to go and walk or if you if you keep challenging yourself or keep allowing yourself to fail because it's it's not too much because you know someone's there to support you and be with you if you do fail you're able to practice at dealing with hard feelings uncomfortable feelings because you have that more important attachment there to catch you right okay. yeah and there are people listening to this probably i mean i like to fantasize that people are listening to this, but <laughs> <laughs> Me too. There, there are probably people listening to this saying, well, well, I didn't have that, right? I, my parents sucked. I've been traumatized. What do I do now? Um, and there's a lot of things you can do. Of course, we're all mental health clinicians. We're going to say, do whatever you can to get good help, good professional help, but mm -hmm. try to surround yourself with people who are constructive and not destructive. We're all imperfect. And as the saying goes, hurt people, hurt people, mm -hmm. but um, self- I keep coming back to this because of how important it is. 
um, if at the very least, you need to learn to love you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And practice that. Because yeah. when you say surround yourself with people who want the best for you and who love you, you got to start with yourself. Like, are you actually going to start treating yourself with compassion and love? Or are you going to continue to just beat yourself down into submission and, and reinforce that idea mm-hmm. that you are worth, like, that your value is such that you should just be defeated? Yeah, it's hard. Cause, and I, I have relied on my inner critic my inner drill sergeant, mm-hmm. you know, my, my yin to my yang, the, or the opposite. Well, I think it's the yang, <laughs> um, to, to accomplish things. Like I remember in high school football, like it, it wasn't, come on, Steve, you can do it. It was you piece of shit. Get up. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was aggressive mm-hmm. and it was mean. Like mm-hmm. you're, you cannot fail your team. You cannot fail them. And that served me, but it also hurt me like that, that inner critic, even though I, I'm very far away from my high school football glory days, uh, is still alive, alive and well. I still have dreams. <laughs> Every high school football player has the dream where they show up like to the game and they like don't have their cleats and like, but I'm a 38 year old man. Can I still play coach? He's like, yeah, get in here. Where are your cleats? Oh, I forgot them. Oh, sorry. No, I failed my team. I can't play. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm still trying to figure this out. This I don't hope this isn't veering too far from that. But as I as I've kind of paid attention to that in my life, I've similarly driven quite far in my life using predominantly the motivations of guilt and shame, and and using that to motivate me to get things done. And it's it, I can attribute a tremendous amount of any of the accomplish, accomplishments I have to that. But as I become more compassionate, I feel better but my production has come down. Mm-hmm. So I, I obviously I've not ascertained nirvana and achieved the holiness of holies and yeah. self-actualization. So I'm probably still trying to figure that out, but that is something that has entered into my mind is that, you know, at least in a performance with running, sporting competition, as I've learned to be more self-compassionate with myself, I've actually become less good at running in a competitive sense. And, and, and I think we, most of us kind of generally accept the idea, like if you're going to be the top of a competitive uh, environment, you probably are, have a tremendous amount of mental health problems and, and have a pathological personality because that's what it takes to be up there. But yeah, we're making some a priori assumptions here that like uh, productive is good. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Productive Depends is a what value and it's a value that's common in a Western societies, but mm-hmm. particularly in America. It might not be conducive to happiness, though. Exactly. Like if you've watched I, that Netflix documentary about Michael Jordan, uh, I haven't, but I hear it's good. Oh, it's good. It's good. Yeah, but that's the thing is you gotta. It's also we don't sit and think like, what are my values? What are my core beliefs? What do I really want to believe? And so maybe your core value is I want to be the best runner ever, and that make that is what I want out of life. And if that's it, then maybe the ways that other people would think were unhealthy or whatever are really great for you. Mm-hmm. But maybe if your core value is I want to live a really great, happy, fun, fulfilled life, then maybe I'm not as productive. Mm-hmm. Well, I like how you bring that up because if you're trying to look at how do I escape this, how am I going to escape the self-defeating mentality, it always begins with this uh, reconnection with what your utmost self and value is, the authentic self. What is truly most important to mm-hmm. me? Because once you've really connected with that and you stand firm on that, then you at least have some position to confront any mm-hmm. type of behavior. Well, this okay. self-defeating attitude no longer serves me because what I want most 
is is conflicting with this behavior and and maybe it isn't maybe it is michael jordan is like i just need this mm-hmm. and that's what it is but but life is also weird because you're going to go through different phases in yeah. life because maybe for michael jordan that was the best mentality and it got him to that point in life but life will have transitions and now mm-hmm. at this at some point he's going to transition from that and maybe that behavior is no longer something he can maintain because the values shift yeah yeah, one of the one of the things I'm trying to do as a therapist is helping people gain clarity around that and gain clarity around like speaking of values like what is my highest self? What is when I when I am like in tune with what I value, in tune with what's most important to me. What does that feel like? And if I can, you know, lay some breadcrumbs down there uh, and so that I can find my way back when I inevitably get pulled away from it then maybe that's what mental health is. Maybe that's how I resolve or avoid some of these self-defeating patterns that don't serve me anymore. I get really familiar with what is most important to me. Because like you said, Vari, it's going to be different from person to person. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of this um, this interesting character, David Goggins. If you've ever heard of David Goggins, mm-hmm. he wrote a book, Can't Hurt Me. Um, former special operator, you know, Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, turned um, ultra marathon runner. And in his book, he talks about just having a horrific childhood, physical abuse, emotional abuse, abandonment. And, and he, he turned his life around. Basically, I mean, some people might disagree with this, this uh, assessment, but basically by harness, harnessing his inner drill sergeant. Like he is not kind to himself. He is, he is a ton of self-discipline and he has more pain tolerance than anyone I've ever heard of. And he's accomplished really impressive things. Um, but he's really, really hard on himself. And the way he would talk to himself, it's about defeating his weak parts, you know, conquer your inner bitch or whatever. And like, these are the, the kind of language that he would use. Um, and, it, I, and I follow him on Instagram. He has really inspiring, but kind of frightening <laughs> Instagram posts sometimes. And uh, one time he was addressing some of his critics and he said, you know, uh, to those of you who are criticizing me, like calling me crazy, I'm not crazy. I'm just not you. And I was like, oh, man, that was that was powerful. He just does it differently. And maybe you could make arguments about whether it's healthy or not, but it it seems to be working for him. He's got well, his values and, clear. Yeah. Things are going to orient around your values. So when you brought up the first story of you, I don't want to eat this donut, but then part of you comes in and says, I do want to eat this donut. I made it up. I never eat donuts. <laughs> it, it goes back to... IFS internal family systems Mm -hmm. and and some of the like psychoanalytic that it's it's as if there are multiple yous in there a symphony of cells yeah and if not that then just a symphony of motivations Mm -hmm. like part of me is motivated to do one thing and part of me is motivated to uh, exactly the opposite so you bring up that thanatos death drive and then there's a eros that's pushing against that I, i i've always liked at least some component of that that opposition because from a physiological perspective, we're really built on opposites. Yeah. Like you have bones. Bones are made with osteoclasts, osteoblasts. Part of them are constantly breaking the bone down. Part of them is actually building them back up. You have muscle tone tension that it's also contracting and relaxing. One muscle's contracting, the other one's relaxing, and they, they kind of keep things in proper balance. So you kind of need everything there. The key is balance. So going back to this idea though that there's like multiple motivations in you and so in order to get them into some sort of congress and agreement you have to have that that a priori value that says this is truly what is most important to me 
And then once you have that, then you at least have a chance of being able to navigate through the difficult, competitive, motivational landscape that exists within the human mind. And sometimes I'd say a donut sometimes just tastes good. And so if you eat it, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, totally not. <laughs> Donuts are wonderful. I mean, sometimes I think we give ourselves a head case over something. And sometimes it's just like, no, I just did that because it made me happy and it felt good. And sure, like it doesn't align with my values and all that kind of stuff. But to like heap so much shame on yourself or to be like, I got to always fix something. I got to be better. I think sometimes we're way too hard on ourselves. Oh, tremendously. We all like donuts. We well, all enjoy the endorphins we get from eating something yummy. Yeah. PSA for our audience, uh, no shame around donuts, please. <laughs> yeah. Donuts are wonderful. I had two yesterday. Well, and see, this is me when I wish I was skinny, so I could talk from this point of like, I eat donuts all the time. But when it's a fat person saying, I, I like donuts, it's like, well, duh, of course you like donuts and aren't going to see course. a problem with donuts. But I do think that sometimes we we don't look at the underlying value of like, if I, if I died tomorrow, would I be so happy I denied myself of a donut? No. But if I eat like five or 20 donuts in a day and there's some research that says that's going to give me a coronary heart disease so I can't be around with my family and that's a more important value, then maybe it is important not for me not to eat 20. But if I have a donut every once in a while, well, that's some better life happiness and that's super important to me versus saying like, I'm a really healthy eater. I think or, that I think that speaks well to what, what uh, Derek's saying about about balance too. Yeah. Because human beings are, we're short-sighted. We have the capacity to to think far into the future and make plans and stuff. It's one of the things that separates us from other animals on this planet. We have this fancy prefrontal cortex that can look into the future and and make plans like that. But we're still at war with ourselves because we're also very impulsive and um, a little short-sighted. This is another way I think we we are Mm self-defeating. So if you can find a way to make balance between... You know, maybe we should stop talking about donuts, but I'm getting like really hungry for donuts oh, now. <laughs> yeah, no, we will all be eating donuts after this. <laughs> we're going to go to a bakery after this. Um, but yeah, if, if you can balance between, okay, I have long-term goals for health. I'm not talking about body size. I'm talking about health, okay? We have long-term goals for health, and we know that eating a donut right now, like in this little microcosm of time, will probably not have a huge impact on my long-term health, assuming I don't, I'm not diabetic or whatever. Um but ultimately I do want to be, I want to choose healthier food options generally. I think you can strike the balance and with, without being completely 100% dogmatic about your food choices. Yeah. Right? I think balance is super important because when we're trying to make change, they like in so many different therapy modalities in EMDR, which is a type of modality, you try and say, let's stay within their window of tolerance. You don't want them too activated. You don't want things too traumatic, too hard. But you also don't want it to be totally comfortable and easy. And so you you, not, you like to try and find this great balanced middle ground zone of proximal development where change can actually happen. And I think that that's a really important component to getting out of your own way is realizing it's baby steps. It's having that balance of you can't do it all at once. Well, from some of the things you guys mentioned kind of had a little breakthrough so what the audience doesn't realize is that this is actually just a therapy session for me that we're recording and this is actually my therapist this is an intervention because he had two donuts yesterday i wanted to just (laughs) lure him in here but but the thing that was really interesting as you guys were talking is how much of the model of success 
that has been kind of ingrained with me, maybe even not even so much of my child self, but even as an adult self, is based off of this production, get to the top. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm, str- I'm going to have to take some time to process some of that and see, like, I think there's a tremendous amount of that. And that may not actually be what I want or need because mm-hmm. the balance is, like, at some point you're going to have to sacrifice all these things of, like, I do need to be the best. I need to be the best business owner i needed to be the best runner basketball player football player like that mentality may be good for a period of time but i think generally as people kind of fall into the the normal landscape of life that's that's a mentality that you cannot sustain on eventually it's going to have to fall back into some sense of balance in life and you're going to have to kind of let go of some of those win at all costs use use guilt use aggression to to really master the self yeah i i um if I had a dime for every hyper successful, and by successful I mean by Western standards, usually yeah, monetary yeah. standards, for every hyper successful business person who you know sacrificed relationships, sacrificed sleep, sacrificed their help, their health uh, in order to get to the top of the financial ladder, who then you know decided like, oh, this isn't what I thought I wanted, and now they're like some kind of spiritual guru because they've discovered that it's actually you know presence and relationships and the here and now and whatever that's the meaning of life, I'd be a rich man, you know, ironically. Mm-hmm. Um, I posted something on my Instagram, Dr. Steve Thayer, like and subscribe, today. <laughs> that's along the That was smooth. I like that. That's a little that plug. Good. I don't know if people are going to get that so fast. They, that's okay. Maybe you that's should, okay. like, spell it's it out. Subliminal. really slow. Subliminal. I actually maybe, don't know if I want to. Maybe we can have it there. flashing <laughs> as you say it. <laughs> Next to my face. Um, the, along these lines, it's and I, and I tagged the artist who made this little comic in there, but it's the first frame. It's a two-frame comic. The first frame is this duck, and the caption above the duck is, um, you know, once I'm successful, I'll be happy. And then the next frame is the same duck with a tie on, and it just says, huh. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was so, like, it's simple and funny, but also <laughs> poignant. Like, yeah. it, it represents this mentality that you're referring to, Derek, that, you know, we, we have a sense or what we think will make us happy. Yeah. In our culture, it's striving. It's you know accumulating wealth, accumulating influence, accumulating power. And man, the story is as old as time. We discovered that yeah. that's not necessarily the secret to happiness. There well, are books and that every spiritual Dan Gilbert's career is based on that. Thing. And yeah. even that idea that, that that's something we should we should want is happiness all the time, comfort. You know, where it's like. What if I suddenly have this value that it's pretty cool that sometimes I like to cry or I like to be sad about things or I'm going through something really difficult. And that's that's something that's valuable in my life to have this full range of hu- I keep hitting the microphone. It's <laughs> huge range of human experiences and that's a full life is to experience pain to mm. And I'm terrible at it. I don't like it at all. I don't like pain at all. I don't. Yeah, I don't sit and go around challenging myself. Like that. <laughs> that doesn't happen. You know. That's really, really hard to do. And so I'm not saying that I'm good at it or that any of us are. But we also like have this unconscious thing that we think we should always be happy and everything should always be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's even a value that we can challenge. But yeah, and if you put that as your prime value, happiness at all costs, no matter what, you just set yourself up for a tremendous amount of failure. And why yeah. would you do that? Yeah. <laughs> do some psychoanalysis yeah. analysis on that. Because, I mean, honestly, life is such that, I mean, happiness is generally something that comes and goes. And you're lucky when you have it and you can ride it for a few days. I mean, go on a vacation. But for the for the average person, happy like you should hopefully be able to ascertain and have some happiness, but certainly not 
all the time or you're really going to start to set yourself up for failure. Yeah. So I was trying to think when we were, when we, I was thinking about this and it, uh, I was deciding that part of it is that we like to be comfortable and that's something that's important to us. I was like, well, how do you, how do you fight against that? What kind of hacks are there to do that? Hmm. And one of the things I was thinking about was they did this study where they uh, said, how, how much money will you pay us or will you pay us this amount of money to not get shocked? by this machine. And most people pay the money. They don't want to get shocked. Like smart people, right? <laughs> no one likes to feel, well, some of us do, but some of us, most of us don't like to feel pain. But then they put them in a room with this shocking machine and they had to be bored for like, I don't know, half hour or something. I don't remember the specifics. And these same people that paid not to get shocked would get bored enough that they'd be like shocking themselves with the machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what this tells us is that we can hack into the, the our human nature and give ourselves opportunities to be bored. Like, if I'm bored enough, maybe I'll, like, do a match and see, you know, do you remember being a kid and doing the dumbest things yeah. ever that hurt or were dangerous? And some of it was because you were bored. And some of it was because it was fun. And so you could make a game out of it, like challenging yourself to, like, how long can I stick my hand in cold water or, you know, whatever it is. Like anytime as humans, we make a game out of something, it's easier to do. And so I've been thinking about in my own life, what kind of ways am I going to challenge myself to sit in uncomfortableness, whether that's emotions or physical pain or whatever, and, and have myself do hard things, but just hard enough, just a little bit hard. Well, and so in, not that it's my role to summarize, but to summarize some of the things that in this discussion, there's some fundamental narratives that I think are just, when I say fundamental narratives, they they exist in everyone's life to some degree. And one of the things that we're discovering from this is, so you're going to be in some environment at some point in your life where you have felt self-defeated, like that's unavoidable, inescapable. How then do I climb out of that? How then do I do this? Well, maybe you need to identify what your core values are. And once you've done that, you at least have something to aim at, some sort of motivational drive to have you confront whatever those things are that are defeating you. But the other part of the story that's worth noting is that the thing that you value and the things that are standing in the way of that, in order to get the thing that you want, it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be painful. And that is non-negotiable, unavoidable, and that's an inherent fundamental part of the human narrative. In as much as the thing you want most, maybe that's the balance in life. If you truly want that balance, it's only going to come by allowing yourself to experience some degree of pain, right? And I, I think that's one of the fundamental precepts of the psychotherapy. You have to allow yourself to feel this thing, that, that point of discomfort in order to get through on the other end and find balance and find healing. Well, Derek, yeah. I, I think you can change your relationship to that discomfort too. In, in his mm-hmm. book, The Tools, psychiatrist Phil Stutz talks about this metaphor of the comfort zone and that when, as long as we're inside our little zone of comfort, right, we're not going to experience discomfort. But a lot of times, so let's say on the outside of that zone, what creates the border is this fog of pain. And every time we enter that fog, it's uncomfortable. But we know on the other side of that fog is stuff we would love to have, uh, relationships we would love to have, skills we would love to have, but there's no way to get there except through the fog of pain. Mm -hmm. So you have an option here. You can look at that fog and you can see it instead of of as the obstacle to what you want, 
It is the path to what you want. And because it's the path, you want it. Because it is inextricably connected hmm. to what you want. So because of its association with what you want, you begin to like it. So this is feel the burn. Mm-hmm. This is no pain, no gain. And you can literally change your relationship to pain to where the, the effort, the exertion, actually starts to feel good because of what it represents. It represents I'm getting stronger. It represents I'm developing skill. It represents I'm getting closer to my goals. Hmm. So I think that's one way we evolve in order to become less self-defeating. We change our relationship to That's the, the opposite of the spitting in the soup, which is what you do to get rid of the secondary gain, right? You, you take that unconscious motivation towards the, the behavior that you don't like, you spit in the soup, and it's like, oh, I don't want to eat that soup anymore. That's disgusting. You know, you're doing this because you want to be pathetic and miserable and weak and live in your mother's basement for the end of your life and never get a job and just never challenge yourself, right? That's that's kind of the alternative narrative. I'm never going to go and pursue the things that I want most because it's connected with that pain, so I'm going to avoid that. And so you can you can spit in the soup and say, okay, here's all the negative things that are tied to the secondary gain to to deter you from going down that path. What you're saying there is like, well, here's the positive component of this. Let's let's take the thing that is most valuable for you and inextricably link it with uh, with the suffering. And in that way, it changes your relationship. I like that. That's yeah. good. So to wrap this up, uh, let's go get donuts. <laughs> Derek, if you try let's... to eat a second donut, I'm going to spit on it. <laughs> Thank you for and joining Steve, me. I won't let you eat the donut. <laughs> okay. So you won't have so much shame. Good. <laughs> I love how helpful we are. Well said. Thanks, folks. Thank you for joining us today. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This will help us get into the ears and faces of more people and help us put wind in the sails of the psychedelic medicine renaissance. Thanks for listening. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.